what was it, six weeks ago, we gathered outdoors downtown Hobart at the Festival Band Shell, and we kicked off what has been several weeks now of looking at this same passage. I hope that this passage feels familiar, like something you've known all your life. Maybe by now, having looked at it and read it and heard it so many times, it's imprinted on your heart and your soul. We've been seeing that God has called us not just to faith, but a growing faith, right? A growing faith. We've seen that a godly faith arises from godly character, which grows through godly effort by God's power and grace. That's been the overarching idea all summer long, all through the month of July, picking up into the end of June. We've seen that God has given us everything we need to work hard to continue to grow in reflecting Jesus. We've seen and heard a call then to add to our faith several qualities. The first one we looked at here at HP was self-control. How's that been all summer long? Are we doing review quizzes? Should we take a vote? Self-control. The next we heard from Dr. Ganchow about affection, brotherly affection and love. Wasn't that an incredible reminder of what really ties in together the body of Christ and makes all of this work? Then we heard about knowledge from Pastor Andrew Moffitt. The, the more we know about God, how that shapes how we can grow and live and follow him. Last week we heard from Pastor Dexter Harris about godliness. What a timely word that was for our church family. If you didn't hear some of these messages, I encourage you to go back, uh, listen to our podcast here from this campus to know what it is that we've been adding to our faith over time. And today we wrap up this series in 2 Peter, looking at steadfastness where we're told to add to, to make every effort to supplement our faith with steadfastness in verse 6. To supplement our faith with steadfastness. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 so memorably uses the same word to tell us that we ought to run the race of our lives with endurance. That's another word we use for steadfastness, endurance. That life is like a race, a, a long-distance race, a marathon. I don't know how many of you are into any kind of athletics or swimming or, I don't know, you might even consider quilting an athletic pursuit. Goodness, you guys keep after that for a long, long time. If you've done anything that requires hard work for a long period of time, you know that it requires endurance, effort. Um, about eight years ago, when I was more foolish than I am today, I ran a marathon. And then I've done no exercise ever since. <laughs> I actually read in a magazine that marathons are some of the worst things someone can do who wants to get into shape. Because it so thoroughly demoralizes anyone from exercising ever again in their life. So a word to those of you who are thinking about starting an overwinter uh, a goal or, or privilege there uh, of, of an exercise routine. And in that marathon, there, there's several thoughts that come up 
along the way. You know, like you've, you've done the work, you've, you've prepped, you've trained all season long, preparing for this big race day, and you wake up really early in the morning, and you're not sure what to eat and what not to eat, and you, you get down to the race, and there's these hundreds of thousands of people. I, it, it was this huge international marathon I was running between uh, Detroit uh, and across the uh, Detroit River into uh, Windsor, Canada, and, and you run across the bridge, under the tunnel, and there's all this energy. And as the race starts, one of the first things that comes to mind is the thought that, like, hey, pace yourself. Don't start this too fast, right? If you get started too quickly, you're going to run out of steam way too soon. You've got to be at this for a long, long time. So pace yourself. That's one of the first thoughts that comes to mind. Another thought that comes to mind shortly after that is, why did I do this? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep going. Don't slow down. You've got to stay with your pace, your goal. My goal in running this marathon was to, to beat my family because I'm a righteous man and I wanted to do better than everyone I knew. My dad had run a marathon in his mid-40s, so I knew I could do better than my old man, Right? And my sister, my big sister, had run a marathon, and I knew I could do better than my sister, so I had this goal. I had to beat their times. I had to come in, you know, just around four hours in, in my race. And so I had this persistent thought, keep going, keep going, keep going. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil alert. I, I lost to both my dad and my sister that day. <laughs> Because I'm, in fact, awful at marathon running or marathon walking, which was most of the second half of what I did. But there was another thought. Even as I, you know, had lost all motivation and lost all energy and had totally run out of fumes and was despairing for a life even at several points along the way, another thought started to loom is, you're getting closer. You're getting closer. Right? Like, there's this finish line, and there's all this uh, energy, and there's these crowds of people, and the other runners around you are starting to celebrate with their, uh, their, their running partners, putting arms around each other, and, and there's this energy in the, in the city that you're, you're almost there, so go ahead and finish strong. Pace yourself, and then keep going, and you're getting closer. Those are the persistent thoughts of endurance and steadfastness. I think we, in an environment of God's family, as, as Peter calls us to put on steadfastness, could use this understanding of the word, that steadfastness is enduring faithfulness. It's enduring faithfulness. It's gritty. It's enduring. It's patient. It has no quit. It's got a big-shouldered commitment to an idea. Faithfulness. Right? Following God's ways. Passionate about God's vision. Seeing with God's perspective. Steadfastness is not just hard-headedness. Right? You don't, you don't get a check off the box and you're just like, oh yeah, I'm determined. Because your family is going to start elbowing you and be like, know what you are is annoying. Like, 
Steadfastness is more than just being determined. It's about being enduringly faithful. As Eugene Peterson said, which Daniel referenced just a moment ago, steadfastness is that long obedience in the same direction. We're going to see in this passage and really many others throughout Scripture that our steadfastness is commanded. And that's maybe just the first and most obvious thing we ought to say and write down and understand and agree with, that God has called us to be steadfast. It's not just something we can say, that's for really great Christians. That's for my parents to do. That's for my sister as she faces that hard time. No, steadfastness is commanded for all of us. We're to supplement our faith and even grow increasingly in steadfastness. Think of 1 Corinthians 15, which says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, the family of God, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We're told here in 2 Peter that God has given us everything we need through the gospel, through the promises in his word and the power of the Holy Spirit to be increasingly steadfast then in our faith. But man, I have a question then. If that's true, if God's given us here at HP everything we need to be steadfast and to be more and more and more steadfast in our faith, why is it that the church, maybe not our church, of course, but the church that we hear about or read about or, or know people who belong to it, why is it that we often seem like we're not steadfast? How can it be that if God's given us everything we need to be steadfast, that it can feel like I don't feel very steadfast? Or that it can seem like I, I know a lot of people that seem to walk away or seem to not know how to make it through or seem to give up or quit. Maybe they followed these tips for unsteady lives. It could be that they've tried to earn their way or that we try to earn our way. A tip for an unsteady life is to try to earn your way. You might call it legalism. Where some faiths teach and many people believe that they're doing good enough to be good enough. That the whole reason to live, the whole reason to try hard, and the whole reason to endure is to be good enough to be good enough. To be good enough. To be good enough for God to say, I'm good enough. But church, if our standard depends on you then you'll always be unsteady. Because we, inherently on our own, are unsteady. So it wouldn't work to earn our way, but the other tip for an unsteady life is to try to get rewarded this way. To try to be good enough, to try to be steadfast, to try to endure, to try to uh, be faithful over time and over a season with the hope that I'm going to get a payday one day in this life. That I'll be rewarded for this sacrifice. That if God sees that I'm doing enough right now, and I'm obedient right now, and I give generously in this season, I'm doing it because I know I'm going to get rewarded. Or if I say no to that thing, or if I say yes to that opportunity, I'm going to do it hoping one day to be rewarded. To live out your life and be obedient under the assumption that this will force God's hand towards you with blessings in this life. That your behavior could trigger a reward. If that's the way 
you live your life, prepare for an unsteady life. Because God doesn't promise good times. He promises that your times, whether good or bad or hard or easy, he promises that your times will be worked together for good. Right? God doesn't promise good times. He promises that all of your times, whatever they are, as you love him and follow him, as you put your faith in him, God is using all things then in your life together for a good that you may not possibly understand in this season of life. But if you live your life trying to be rewarded this way, prepare for an unsteady life. And so church, I want to caution you. We're going to continue at Bethel Church at Hobart Portage to call our church family to follow God, to live lives of sacrificial, radical obedience to him. We're going to ask as God's word calls us that we lay down what we want most in life for the glory of God, so that others may see and understand and rejoice in the God who's rescued us. And I want to be very clear then, as we make that ask, don't assume that if I do that, then things will go well for me. Church, can I say this up front in some of the first months that I'm here? As we call each other and stir up obedience to God, it never comes with a promise that our lives will be better for it in an experiential way, the way the world might define it. Can I be clear about that? That doesn't mean that it isn't for an ultimate good. That doesn't mean that it won't change our expectations of what is good or is bad. It doesn't mean that we won't get to see and savor more beautiful things than we ever could have otherwise. But if you do it thinking, I'm going to get a reward in this life, in the way I defined it, before I knew God, you're almost sure to be disappointed. And with that disappointment, as the sand washes away underneath the life you've been trying to lead, you may feel very unsteady. The other tip for an unsteady life is to live whatever way you want. Whether it's license or sin, knowing that God will forgive you in the end or not caring anyway. If we quench the work of the Spirit convicting us in our lives and we disobey God's word, prepare to grow a harvest of instability. The Proverbs that are left to us in God's word show us time and time again that the way of the foolish leads to ruin ignoring God and his wisdom, and then quenching the spirit that he's filled us with as his children is a sure way to experience a life that is filled with frustration and difficulty. So that's a great tip for an unsteady life. And that might be why we feel like people who don't endure. Sometimes I think we subscribe to a wrong way of thinking and living. But God's divine power has, in fact, given us all things that pertain to life and a steadfast faith. So to increase in that faith, I want to give an application right up front. Before we even get into, I think, the best part of the truth of steadfastness, here's how we grow a more steadfast faith. If you want some practical things to do, start here. First, connect to the source. Connect to the source. 
If you want a steadfast faith, connect to the source of that faith through reading his word and spending time with God in prayer. Connecting to the source of our faith is the surest starting point to have a steady understanding of how to experience and interpret what life is throwing at you. I think about the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4, where where sower sowed seeds across all sorts of different types of terrain, right? Some hardened pathway and some weeds and over there in the rocks and then also in fertile, good soil. And perhaps unsurprisingly, in all these other different soils, the seed either doesn't even grow or doesn't last long. It isn't steadfast. It doesn't endure. But there's one soil where the crop does remarkably well. And and in fact, much of the crop yields an incredibly abundant harvest. It's the fertile, rich, cultivated, good soil. In the same way, to patiently endure through droughts in our life and through difficulties that come, to grow in steadfast faith, we ought to cultivate the soil of our hearts and the soil of our minds with the nutrients of God's truth and time spent with him, wondering what's going on in our life and asking him to continue to make us more like him and to teach us to trust him more. Connecting to the source is one way to grow a more steadfast faith. And the other thing to do is to connect to a family. This gospel community and smaller communities within it. And in the marathon I ran, I I know one thing that helped many people was the community. It, It was running partners that helped them keep a pace. Even when one of the other wanted to stop or wanted to slow down or wanted to quit, there was the other one right there suffering alongside with them saying, no, no, no. Keep going. Keep running. Let's do this, right? Uh, or, or I'm going to push you. Or, I'm going to pull you. Or I'm going to cheer you on. Or I'm going to make fun of you. Whatever works right now, right? We're going to run this together. That partnership. And the other thing that helped was the community of, of people cheering them on, right? Like the crowd or the friends and family holding cheesy signs or throwing food or water at them saying like, you can do it. Keep going. Together, we run much better than alone. Connecting to the family of God is an important trait, skill set, habit that leads to steadfast living. I know that's hard because when you run with a running partner, they have a different pace than you. They have different things they like to talk about. Or even worse, they want to talk about something. Here to run. Stop making me talk. It's wasting valuable oxygen. They might have different preferences. They want to wake up way earlier for their work schedule than you'd rather run or think about being alive. Community can feel complicated. It certainly puts your best interests in the secondary position. But in the community of God, we have brothers and sisters who are there to be an example to us, who are there outside of our own convenience, perhaps, to encourage us, to remind us that even in seasons that are hard, maybe they've been there before, and here's a way that you can do it and and to show up. I mean, if there's one thing I think that Bethel Church HP is good at already, 
It's that starting point of community. I've seen and heard of so much of that cheerleading happening. So many of those race side snack areas with meals being delivered in seasons where it's hard to figure out which way is up. And, and uh, friendships and, and all, all the part times this summer of, of all the younger families and, and many of the small group environments where you're sharing each other's burdens and as we think about a fall launch, church family, I want you to know in a season that your schedule is going to get pulled in a hundred different ways, in a season where you might feel like maybe this year isn't the year because life is crazy. Life is crazy. Church family, we must invest in gospel community. It is worth the investment. If we want to have a steadfast faith, it will be a required part of the investment. God has given us a family to stir each other up to gospel living, to good works, to a steadfast faith. So in this season, as we think about new ministries launching this fall, and we think about small groups, and we think about uh, ongoing Bible education opportunities, men, find continued gospel community. Connect to the family. And then finally, connect to reality. To grow a steadfast faith, connect to reality. And by that, I guess I mean, church, we have to anticipate pain and, and heartbreak and persecution and suffering and things going wrong for us. We have to connect to reality. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, John 16. And Paul in Romans 5 said, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, and there's the same word, endurance, steadfastness. And that endurance produces character, character producing hope, and hope not putting us to shame because of God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We need to connect to a reality. Suffering is a part of the program. Complications and heartache and loss are part of the program. In fact, sometimes they're the very thing that expose and require and grow endurance and long-suffering steadfastness, which then grows a newly defined and deepened hope in a God that we realize was more powerful and more good than we ever had imagined before. I think of... Uh, if you, any of you are association fans in the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers had a rebuilding season, like most of Chicago sports have for the last couple decades. <laughs> a rebuilding season, and, and in their rebuilding season where they weren't doing all so good, and they were hedging their bets against getting good draft picks and uh, collecting enough free money so that their owners could keep getting rich while having a good team put together, they had a slogan. Do you, do you remember what it was? Trust the process, right? They, they were saying on all their advertisements and all of their ticket sales and, and all the things where things seemed the darkest, they were saying, trust the process. Trust the process. Trust the process. This is all for a reason, for a purpose. This is resulting in hopefully a better result. I don't know if it's going to work out for them the way they hoped. But in God's family, I think we need to trust the process. That God's plan includes opposition. 
that some problems won't go away. And sometimes God allows evils and tragedies to befall even us. To make us fruitful, to make us effective, to discover our faith was stronger than we imagined, to discover that Jesus is nearer than we had dreamed. And then like Pastor Spurgeon once said, we can learn to kiss the waves that throw us back to the rock of Jesus. To kiss the waves and the storms and the problems that throw us back on a rock, not that destroys us, but that is our foundation, Jesus. That's how we grow more steadfast faith. We connect to the source and connect to the family and connect to a reality. And with that perspective, we then grow to understand that steadfastness is actually a delight, not a duty. In fact, James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. The good life belongs to the steadfast. He goes on to say in chapter 5, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The song we sang, Blessed Be Your Name, this morning is written out of the story of Job. And James in his book says, recall the suffering of Job and how as he endured it, he saw a God who had a purpose. And so he says, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. It's a delight. It's a good life to be steadfast, to be able to endure past things that would throw others and even ourselves off if it weren't for a God who had a purpose. And maybe even a most specific way we can see that steadfastness is a delight is to say it this way. Our steadfastness is liberating to us. Liberating. I think in this age and, and day in society, and maybe my personality type, because I'm uniquely, you know, weird. We tend to be doers. We tend to be fixers. How many would agree with that phrase? At least one of the people in your marriage, right? The other one's just like, just hear me. We tend to be doers, fixers. We want to solve the thing. The problem exists out there, and we're just like, can we punch it till it's gone? Right? Like, can we fix it? Can we remove it? We don't want to deal with it anymore. Let's solve it. Let's get a victory. Let's get a success. Let's get a story we're happy about. Let's get an ending. We justifiably pray with the hope that God is going to be removing those pains and things in our life. And sometimes God and his wisdom sees it right to do so. But some problems can't be resolved. Some illnesses aren't healed. Some challenges and losses can only be endured. And there's a part of us, maybe it's our culture that tells us, no, that's quitting. No, 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 no. You can't say just endure it. You have to say solve it. To an inexperienced believer, to a not all that yet grown Christian, the lack of resolution can feel like failure. Maybe even like God has ignored them. It can feel like captivity in their heartache. 
But steadfastness as a trait is a gospel-given ability to remain patiently faithful even when the opportunity is not there to have complete freedom or victory. It's realizing that sometimes a resolution isn't God's goal for us. That sometimes endurance is the goal. And that can be liberating to realize. That faithfulness is the goal. That life doesn't always have to look like a solution. Sometimes I'm still in it is enough. I'm still worshiping God in this is enough. I'm still fixed on his purposes despite this circumstance. I'm still displaying his servant-hearted love even though it doesn't seem like it's working. And in a season where it seems like solutions evade us and cultural issues seem so far gone that it doesn't seem like we can save the day. It matters that God's people know he calls us to steadfastness. Not always a solution. Passing the test may not mean completing the test, acing the test, or knowing everything in the subject area so well that you never need to be tested in it again. Passing this test may mean staying faithful through continued testing after testing. I think about, in my season, parenthood. Maybe further on down the line, you know this better than I do. That sometimes in God's sovereignty, faithful parenting, if we even get there, doesn't result in a kid that reflects God's image quite as well as we had hoped they would. After our eloquent lecture, after our excellent family devotional time, they still, well, just like us. Perhaps... Enduringly faithful parenting becomes being present and staying engaged in that season. Not lashing out at them as if their behavior modification was our identity. Still upholding God's character and ways as our standards, even when all the other family standards around us seem to be changing. Not quitting them, not quitting God, even when it seems like these problems aren't being resolved. We want to be successful. Parents, spouses, believers, employees. We want to be successful, but in most cases in life, the only thing we get to control is whether or not we're steadfast to be faithful to God's ways. Being faithful to God's ways moment by moment, day by day, and leaving the results in his hands. Do you see how steadfastness is liberating? That I don't have to get the result I'm aiming for. I have to follow God's ways. That well done, good and faithful servant is God's word to his children who he brings home. Good and faithful. Good and faithful not good and successful. Not good and world changing. Not good and achieved not good and accomplished, good and faithful son, daughter. The call to steadfastness is liberating because it gives purpose to our seasons of pain. It gives context to unresolved challenges. That God could be doing something even when the result isn't what we had hoped for. Because ultimately our steadfastness is rooted in the steadfastness of God. 
We're told in Scripture that God is a God who is unchanging. Exodus 34 speaks of his characteristics. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love for thousands. Second Thessalonians says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Jesus' endurance to God's faithfulness is something that we're directed to hope in. In Hebrews 10, which says, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering steadfastly because he who promised is faithful. That's who our God is. God is steadfast. In every season of our lives, he has been there. Unchanging and unchanged in his gentle compassion, his radical mercy, his fierce love, his all-consuming holiness. He has always been there. He is. And we, created in his image, but then fickle and rebellious, exhausted and ashamed, have been invited to that God there with open arms at all times in perfect love, invited into his forgiveness, into his family, into his love. We're invited to look to him and see everything we need and know that it's enough and know that it's always been there and it always will be. Isaiah 40 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. How do we become steadfast saints? He gives power to the faint. That's how. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and weary and young men fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Our power for steadfast living is found in a God who is unchanging, our creator and then also our rescuer. Our ability to be steadfast doesn't come from however mighty or tough or well-studied, or well-behaved, we've ever been. It comes from the character and nature and power of a God who is steadfast for us. Last couple weeks, I and my family were able to get over to the East Coast to visit with my in-laws and all the cousins. We loved it. I mean that, despite babysitting 15 kids all the time. One of the days I escaped, thank you, Ashton, and um, got down to my brother who a year ago moved to Annapolis, Maryland. I hadn't been able to visit them there. They just had a new baby. And I wanted to see the new baby, but really see their new town. <laughs> see Annapolis, see the Naval Academy. That seemed like a great way to spend a day with my brother. So we were walking around Downtown Annapolis in the courthouse, and it's uh, uh, just this incredible kind of Chesapeake Bay, seaside kind of historic city. And, and then we were at the Naval Academy, where Marines and, and those going into the Navy Officer Corps are trained and, and equipped for that calling in life. And we were walking around the grounds, we came up to the chapel there, which is just this 
beautiful historic church. And right outside the chapel, there are these two anchors on the, on the stairways. I think I've got a picture of it too. Yes, these anchors, the picture does no justice. Those stones are, you know, like as big as me. And, and the anchors are over 10,000 pounds. They're just massive. They were built to stop and steady warships, just massive ships who have so much weight, they need something huge in order to stop them and who are so large and are built to withstand the largest of weather events in the world, hurricanes, and they need anchors that are so big in order to secure them such massive vessels in the worst of storms. The more massive the anchor is, the more staying power it has. It makes me think of who we go to for hope and refuge for steadfast living in the storms of life. The way Hebrews 6 says it, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope before us, to be steadfast, to hold fast. What's that encouragement? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever. That's our sure anchor. That's the source of our steadfastness, Jesus. Jesus who lived and died for us, who was enduringly faithful for us, opened up a way to God through his sacrifice, is in his presence and prays for us and reigns forever. He is our sure and certain hope. He's an anchor who's big enough for our lives to be weathered in any storm and to survive any tragedy. What was that something in your life that you wrote down that you wish would go away? I mean, we'd love to be praying with and for you. I know that life can feel like it's too much. That these things might be the greatest sources of pain in your life. And I know that God can heal, and God can rescue you, and God can redeem, and God can change hearts, and God can do things that we couldn't dream of. But I also know that God has bigger dreams for us than sometimes we do for ourselves. And so it might be that God's call for that storm, like Paul's thorn, is that it remains so that we can see Jesus as an anchor for even that. We can have enduring lives of faith, steadfast and without wavering, because we know we have a steadfast and unwavering Christ. So church family, may we, like the psalmist, set the Lord always before me, at my right hand, knowing I shall not be shaken.